good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're obsessed with her, and you're obsessed with her daughter! All right, easy, Geraldo. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking Tracy Lords as a conservative manners-obsessed mother. We're talking fatherly cold sores. And we're talking overly made-up cum dumpsters. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking bloody cunnilingus. Oh, yeah, 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 okay. I mean, I was gonna do, like, fill in the blank, but, like, I feel like, I think I did that for something else already, so I didn't want to repeat myself. Because <laughs> this, we, everyone, we are talking Richard Bates Jr.'s Excision, and it is a film mm-hmm. with a lot of things going on. There's so many things going on. I'm actually very excited to talk about this movie, if only because I had forgotten just how hard it goes, and it was honestly a wild ride to revisit it i agree and lest anyone think that me thinks that me saying um there's a lot going on means it's a bad thing no 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 no. i fucking love this movie Mm -hmm. this was my second time seeing it and i was kind of worried it's one of those things it's like i I saw it you know when it was released in 2012 and right i don't know if it's gonna hold up um it holds up But we, I feel like we need some help discussing this movie, Joe, because there's, a, there's definitely a lot to unpack here, and I think this movie does have a special place in a lot of people's hearts. So, everyone, they are a non-binary writer, graphic designer, and photographer, most often writing about family, trauma, and queerness in film. They are the co-creator of Transploitation, the first book exploring trans and non-binary representation in horror. And they are also the co-host of the horror podcast Six Sad Monsters, which looks at two horror films that share the same theme each week. Please welcome Ren Crane. Hi. <laughs> Thank you so Hi. much for having me. Thank you for coming. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you are talking about one of my favorite films, so <laughs> do tell. So I, I I usually try to ask this before we record, but so did you pick the, did did you pick this film out of a list that Joe sent you or did Joe give it to you? Yes, they did. They picked it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> No, but please, why, why, I mean, we'll talk about it throughout the episode with this, like, why you like this film so much. But yeah, what what is your relationship with this film? Why why did you pick this film? Well, other than it being just visually stunning on every level and mm-hmm. <laughs> having probably one of my favourite aesthetics of a horror film at all, um, I watched this right after I was diagnosed with BPD. Literally the same week, actually, I think. So it really hit emotionally for me, and (laughs) it was very heavy. Mm -hmm. And Ren, just in case people don't know what the acronym is, can you explain what BPD is? Yeah, so BPD is Borderline Personality Disorder, which is normally a result of trauma, though people can have it without. It also has genetic factors, but... It's a very severe personality disorder that it's like bipolar, which is um, like mood cycles that last months or weeks at a time. BPD has multiple cycles like that on a daily basis. 
So it's a bit like a roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, it's a roller coaster of only extreme highs and lows, essentially. Right. Okay. I mean, I, I, I will confess, I don't know a ton about it. My actually, my, I mean, this is maybe not related to horror, but my introduction to BPD was with the television series Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, because that, that is a show where, I mean, spoiler alert, but eventually the, the main character is diagnosed with BPD. Wow, I haven't seen that, but now I'm very tempted to pick it up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, Ren, it's really good. It's, I mean, again, it, it's a musical. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how you feel about musicals, but it is a musical show. When, basically, when she gets anxious or stressed out, she sees the world in song. Mm-hmm. But yes, it's very much, um, it, it's a lot of cringe comedy because the first season is very <laughs> much about she moves across the country for a guy. Yeah. But they oh, wow. planned out, they, yeah, but they planned out a four season like journey for her mental health. Yeah. And it's really, really, really good. There just is a lot of cringe in it that I think turn, that turns people off. Yeah. It's actually not dissimilar to this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I'm like, I'm not really into musicals, but looking at them as like an analogy for BPD moods, I'm, I'm kind of tempted to take a look at some other things that I've written off as a musical before now. <laughs> I, I would recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but yes, Joe, you are right, though. It's not unlike this film that we're discussing today, because um, and I, it's funny. I feel like lately I've seen more people talk about this film, because this film came out in 2012. It was Richard Bates Jr.'s... Richard Bates Jr.'s... Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Debut film. Uh, he's made three cents, and he's a fifth film coming out um, to TIFF this year? No, Fantasia this year. Right. But it was one of those straight-to-DVD things after a festival run, and I feel like it kind of, like, I don't know, got buried, and then people just found it over the past, what, eight years? I think so. This is an interesting one. So I was actually, this is one of the first films that I saw at Fantasia. I was there in 2012, so I got to see this with a crowd. Let me tell you, this is a good (laughs) film festival film, if only because people clearly had no idea what we were any of us getting into and this is the kind of film where you're going to have a reaction to it maybe negative maybe positive it may be like what the fuck am i watching but it will absolutely elicit things in you and i love the kind of i don't want to say emotional component to it but just the visceral component like you will feel something from this film i will confess so this is a movie where i mean like I watched it because the poster art with Annalyn McCord, I think, is gorgeous. But I, mm-hmm. I just remember seeing a trailer and the visuals were so pretty, um, as Ren, you already mentioned. So I rented it and I watched it. and I was like, oh, my God, this is such a fun, like, dark horror comedy. And then the, the ending hits. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember, like, I was taken off guard, even though rewatching it. like It's really obvious where it's yes, going. <laughs> very <Yeah>. much so. <laughs> But I, it stuck with me. It sat with me for so long in the days after I watched it where I was just like, a sh- I mean, it, it was a feeling similar to Martyrs for me. Not quite as intense, but where I just felt kind of hollow after watching it and just like wanted to absorb the feeling that I had after watching this film because it is it is a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Like after, I think there's a few films that's happened with where I've just like sat kind of dazed through the credits of them. Mm-hmm. This was one, uh, and then the other ones were Matters and Raw. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah. 
Yeah. Trace doesn't have a, a very strong relationship to Raw, but I I <laughs> agree with you. On that no, I, I know I'm in the minority. I, I'm in the, I think Raw's fine, but like, I don't quite see the, what the big thing is. But um, listeners, stay tuned. Maybe we'll cover it one day. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, okay. So, excision. So in case anyone doesn't know, let's just talk about how this film got made. So... Richard Bates Jr., uh, Ricky, to his friends, according to the commentary, which I will say, if y'all do not own this Blu-ray, I would highly recommend buying it, because the only special feature on it is a commentary with the writer-director and Anna Lynn McCord, and they're kind of awesome to listen to. (laughs) But he made his short film, Excision, uh, in 2008, when he was at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, and obviously it really captured people's attention because it did really well in the festival circuit back then. That being said, it still took him about five years to get this feature film made. Uh, he moved to L.A., he was trying to shop it around, and basically everyone he talked to was like, um, no. <laughs> this is not material that's appropriate for anything. No one will go see this. It will not make any money. You cannot make this movie. And they just thought it was too twisted. So after finally securing financing, which came in the form of a producer of his, so he immediately began looking for his Pauline. Uh, he did not want to cast Anna Lynn McCord because she was too pretty. He was worried, and I quote, that it was going to be a she's all that situation. Which is funny because I've seen people read the opening part up to when she loses her virginity to Adam being mm-hmm. like, oh, it's kind of a she's all that like a satire. And I'm like, okay, I guess kind of. Yes. I mean, <laughs> I feel we're even talking about Annalyn McCord's looks. She is a gorgeous woman. And they really, I don't even want to use the phrase uglied her down for this, but they just made her look so normal, I guess is how I'm going to put it. Because to me, Annalyn McCord is like supermodel pretty, but... She is. I mean, she was on a CW show as, like, the <laughs> hot one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wasn't she the well, lead? Well, that's saying something for the CW <laughs> show. <laughs> it was the 90210 reboot, which admittedly I didn't yeah. watch, but I, I was introduced to her on Nip Tuck, where she was horrendous. I mean, so she was good in it, but her character was horrendous. Yes, Yeah, that's right. I've seen Nip Tuck, but I've never seen 90210, but so, so I know that. <laughs> She definitely didn't always look like she does in this. (laughs) No. Right. But she fought for this role. She really, really wanted it. And so when she came to audition, she actually, like, I I mean, again, I'm going to use the phrase, uglied herself down, and came into the audition in character, which convinced Bates to, uh, to cast her. Similarly, I mean, again, the cast of this movie, which we'll talk about, is bizarre, and there's a lot of really great ironic casting choices with people like Tracy Lords <laughs> and John Waters. Mm-hmm. But the the one cast member that I also think kind of stands out is Arielle Winters, um, who at this time would have been, what, four or five seasons in The Modern Family? Her team did not want her in this movie. She did, and her mother wanted her in this film, but no, none of her reps wanted her because she was on the biggest sitcom on TV at the time. Right. Um, But they fought for it, and she got it. So, (laughs) yay. They filmed this movie in Los Angeles. Uh, It was kind of hectic. It lasted for 28 days, but they lost financing several times during shooting. Um, They also lost days that they were supposed to be filming because a producer forgot to secure a permit. Uh, So, I guess they were originally going to have, like, 40 days, and it went down to 28. Oh, my God. Wow. (laughs) The production designer quit a week into filming. And also half of the crew of this film were uh, made up of freshmen in film school who were working for free. Hmm. Oh, wow. 
Wow. I'm not sure that's above board, but uh, good for them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I would have wanted to work on this film, even if it was for free. So. But but that's the thing, right? Like, you hear that, and it's like, oh my god, like, that sounds like a mess. Um, nothing good can come out of that. And then you get this film that not only is good, but also is very well made, well shot, well designed. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's so good. Yeah, that feels like a passion project more than anything, if they're all just willing to work on it like that for free. I agree with that. And I think for Bates specifically, it really was. I mean, he has talked, and we'll talk about this too, but he's talked about how uh, Pauline is very much him. Uh, and also Annalyn McCord has said how there's a lot of her and Pauline as well. But out of curiosity, have either of y'all seen any of Bates's, Bates Jr.'s other films? And this would be Suburban Gothic, Trash Fire, and or Tone Deaf. I haven't seen any of them. I've heard a lot about Suburban, Suburban Gothic, which has... They both have Matthew Gray Goobler in, right? Yes. yes. He makes an appearance in, I think, all of his films, except maybe mm-hmm. Tone Deaf. Right. Yeah. I I have seen Trash Fire, and I like it quite a bit. Not quite as much as Excision, but if you like this film, I would definitely say go seek that one out. I would say the same thing. So here, I have like a, it's not a love-hate, but more of a love-slash-frustration thing with Bates Jr. Um, because I love Excision, <laughs> and I really like Trash Fire. Both are films that I would, I mean, again, like, even trying to categorize them into a genre or multiple genres is like a fool's errand. But I'll call them, like, dark horror films with maybe a comedic edge to them, like a darkly comedic bent. He tends to work in horror comedy a lot, and Suburban Gothic, uh, which is Kat Dennings and Matthew Gray Goobler, Suburban Gothic and Tone Deaf are very much horror comedies that lean into the comedy, whereas Trash Fire and Excision, I think, are horror comedies that lean into the horror. Mm-hmm. He's really good when he does that. I do not think his films where he leans into the comedy are very good. But because it leans into comedy, it's your mileage may vary. Like I don't find either one of them particularly very funny, and I think Tone Deaf tries especially hard to be funny when it's not. But I've also talked to people who do find them very funny. So again, your mileage may vary. Right. And you're not a fan of comedy that seems to be trying too hard, so that might also explain that. Yeah, I mean, Tone Deaf is about, like, millennial Amanda Crew bothers old-timer Robert Patrick, and they, like, go toe-to-toe. There's a lot of commentary about millennials and stuff, so it's just kind of like, ugh. But, um... (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, again, I would say check them out, because if anything, even if you don't like all of his films, Bates Jr. is always an interesting filmmaker to watch. Agreed, yes. Interesting is an apt word to describe his films. It's like, you may not love them, but he's always going to give you something unexpected, and he's so clearly working outside of the margins of what we're accustomed to seeing. He gets more money for some of the future films, but he never quite loses the grimy, trashy aesthetic. Yes, and and the reason I even I, mean, I know I kind of digress there, but the reason I brought it up is because yes, Ren, like saying this is a passion project. Um, I do think that Excision is his best film, and I haven't quite seen the same passion from him in his follow ups as I've seen for this film. And I think it's kind of a thing where it's like, oh, it's a filmmaker doing first time filmmaker. Obviously, this is the thing they've been thinking about their entire lives making. They're getting it all out here, and now we've got to look see what they do afterwards. Which again, I think Trash Fire has come the closest to matching the heights of Excision. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so Excision premiered at Sundance on January 12th, 2012, and unsurprisingly, there were quite a few walkouts. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly uh, during the abortion fantasy scene, which I had forgotten was in this movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I figured that would be the one that um, caused the most walkouts, honestly. 
Right? I mean, even watching it, I was like, huh, I don't remember. Oh, it's going in the oven. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it does. It gets a mostly positive critical reaction. It is released on Blu-ray and DVD on October 16th, 2012 by Anchor Bay Films. We're looking at a runtime of 81 minutes. I do not know the budget for this film. I could not find those numbers. But again, given the production history I just described, I have to imagine it was not that much money. It's definitely (laughs) low budget, definitely independent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, didn't get released in theaters in the States. It did, however, get released in the UK in theaters. Um, it made almost $3,000. <laughs> That's probably a couple theaters for a weekend. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm so sad that I didn't get to see this in a theater, though I would have loved to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you and me, I'm really jealous of Joe's festival experience because, yeah, I do think that this is one of those films where seeing it with a big crowd would just be a real experience. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, if folks are around the Montreal area in the summer, Fantasia is a it's a can't miss festival because it programs stuff like this on the regular. <laughs> it's where I also saw the Human Centipede. Ugh, God, oh, is... don't even get me started on how much I love the Human Centipede. No, <laughs> <laughs> see polarizing reactions, folks. Uh, no, my I, I don't even my issue with my the Human Centipede. I don't think you think it goes hard enough. I think it's very boring and it doesn't deliver on the promise. But then like I. But then I get the second one, which I think does deliver on the promise, and I wouldn't say I like it, but, like, I admire it in a certain way for its audacity. (laughs) At least it goes there, right? I'm a big defender of the first one, though, for a lot of reasons. (laughs) Okay. We are going to talk about this later, Ren. I'm excited about that conversation. (laughs) Or hopefully it's on your podcast coming up. There we go. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) That means yes. What similar themed movie would you pair with it? <laughs> I, I might tell you when we're not recording. <laughs> yeah, 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 I would go with Boxing Helena. Oh my God. <laughs> so, okay, so yeah, we do have a good positive critical reception here. We're looking at 84% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average oh. score of 6.6 out of 10. So Wow. Yeah, I mean, this people, I mean, AV Club gave this a B plus, which I know my go-to is always the AV Club, but I always think they're really, like, <laughs> harsh in their reviews, so that they gave this a B plus. I was like, good for them. Wow. You and Katie Rife are just going to have some... Uh... <laughs> Katie Rife and I have some similar tastes, but also some not very similar tastes. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Letterbox score actually matches our Rotten Tomatoes average. It is a average score of 6.6 out of 10. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I don't really have anything else in terms of production or anything. Just, uh, I'm excited to dive into this because, uh, whew. Yeah, it's a lot. So I guess before I start the plot summary, I'm just going to offer a bit of context because I think it helps people to understand some of the monstrousness in this movie. So I'm going to draw on a MA thesis by Emily Matheny called The Monstrous Feminine and the Politics of Trash in the film Excision. And this is a little bit of film theory, so bear with me. So basically, Matheny uses the ideas of Barbara Creed and Julia Kristeva to talk about objection and uh, specifically the way that Pauline functions as a woman in this film and the way that she toes gender lines, but mostly how she uses or subverts her femininity to get what she wants to act like a man, to be a threatening figure to a lot of different types of people. And a lot of this has to do with her fascination with objection. 
So if people don't know what that means, abjection does not respect borders, positions, rules, or that which disturbs identity, system, order, which takes the shape of the maternal, the border, and the feminine body. So basically, it means like you refuse to play within the lines, and it's all about disturbing and disrespecting borders and positions and rules, which of course is basically what Pauline does throughout the entire fucking movie. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I love her. (laughs) Right? So the ultimate objection, uh, this is what Kristeva says, is the corpse. And that's the body protecting itself from waste like shit, blood, urine, and pus by ejecting these things. And I'm sorry, Trace, because I know that probably I hate pus so much. Yeah, I don't like that. <laughs> but like this movie is obsessed with the body and bodily secretions and fluids and those kinds of things. So and I'm not going to take it any further than that. But I just think it's interesting if we look at Pauline as someone who has obsessed with these kinds of principles and how that feeds into her psyche i don't disagree and i i also i mean like just from a base standpoint like if you want to describe this film in like like a really uh reductive way it's it's a misfit film right like your adolescent misfit and i think that's why a lot of people especially queer people latch onto pauline even though she's not queer as far as we know queer in the literal sense i guess is how i'll put it <laughs> Yeah, she's very unique and different, but it's interesting to see how she kind of represents an evolution of that teen misfit character. So I I mentioned earlier that sometimes people do compare this to things like the teen makeover film, like She's All That, like Pygmalion and those kinds of things. A lot of people look at this movie as it starts with a teen satire. So the whole thing about her trying to get Adam into bed, and then when she actually gets it, that's when the film shifts gears. But by then, it's lured you in, like it sucked you in, and you actually care about Pauline as a character. And that's when it starts to then say, oh, okay, she's unraveling. She's, I want to say spinning out, but she becomes single-minded in her unique focus and where she goes is towards destruction. Well, and that's why, I mean, I don't, and maybe this is wrong because she self-diagnoses herself with borderline, but I also got the vibe that she might've been on the spectrum in some way. Yeah, I got that vibe too. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Is it just because she's so candid and not afraid of confrontation? Yeah, but it's one specific moment for me gave me that impression, even though I do think it's kind of like throughout the film, but like it's when she first interacts with the jump rope girl and she just kind of says, you know, oh, I stopped doing that in lower class and she starts kind of spouting off all this. It's just very awkward. And again, fuck, I'm trying to say, am I saying this right? Like, I'm not trying to offend the autistic community, but the vibe I got was that, yes, I felt like she might have been on the spectrum in some shape, way or form. No, yeah, I agree. And I'm like in the process of being diagnosed as being on the spectrum. And mm-hmm. a lot of the tests I've had to take do talk about those sorts of social interactions. And honestly, based on the results I got from the test, I I think Pauline would be on too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. If you could actually pin her down to get her to take a test, right? True, yeah. If you told her she'd be a surgeon because of it, she'd do it, though. (laughs) Not untrue. (laughs) Oh, dear. Okay, well, let's kick this off. So we begin with... uh, I don't even know how to describe how gorgeous these dream sequences are, because... They're pretty, they're stunning, but they're also incredibly visually disturbing. This one is is actually quite tame compared to some of the ones that we'll get later. But in this opening dream sequence, we are in some kind of operating room theater. And we see this beautiful blonde woman, 
Pauline, who's played by Anna Lynn McCord, and she is writhing in sexual pleasure as she watches a doppelganger of herself gasp and spit blood. Okay, I'll just start right now. Um, what do y'all make of the fact? <laughs> what do y'all make of the fact though that she is again, quote unquote, pretty in her fantasy sequences? Because I never get in the sense of this character that she really cares about her looks or looking pretty. Because she never, well, I was going to say make an effort, but that doesn't really make it sound good either. <laughs> but she doesn't seem to care about how she looks, right? No, I, I don't think she cares about how she looks either. I think. I don't know, I think when she's in the dream sequences, she's pretty. It's probably not because it's about how she looks, it's more about how she feels about herself Mm -hmm. when she's allowing herself to be morbid and dark and disgusting. Yeah, I see it as the same thing. It's like, it's a manifestation of her true self, but it's not about looking beautiful and, you know, attracting someone to sleep with or the voyeuristic gaze, right? This is the embodiment of who she perceives herself to be and as a result she is i think it codifies for the viewer this is who she really is but it's not about sex it's about feeling herself right like she's in her element in these yeah yeah she's she seems like she feels most powerful when Mm. she's in those sequences Mm -hmm. got it and it is important that i said that it's not about sex but there is a pleasure that she derives in these dream sequences and there is that immediate then equation of sex and death and stimulation and pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the, 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 the pleasure she's getting from these fantasies isn't, yeah, it's to me, it's not really sexuality, sexually based because yeah, when we, when she actually does have sex later, it's not, I mean, it is the same cause we get kind of a fantasy during that sequence, but it's mm-hmm. like, it, yeah, it's like the, the physical touch is not the same for her as, Whatever she gets in these, whatever she's doing in these fantasies. Mm -hmm. The film is so visually driven, especially in these dream sequences, that it's hard to talk about it just with words, because I just don't know that we're doing it justice in some ways. (laughs) Yeah. I did want to point out, I should have said this earlier, though, but um, listeners, if you want to see the short film that this film is based on, it is on YouTube. It's about 18 minutes long. It's actually a really good example of how to expand a, a short story into a film. Sorry, the short story. The the short is basically like a bunch of scenes from this movie that like, but it's focused on the grace scenario and it does end the same way that this film does. Hmm. So this does a really good job of like, expanding the character of Pauline further. Like the stuff with the, the, with, at school is more is in the feature film, but not the short. Okay, so we then have her wake up. So Pauline in real life has acne. She's got mousy brown hair. She's got bad posture and she is incredibly candid and has no filter. <laughs> yes, Which I love. I love her. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's your, yeah, she's speaking exactly what's on her mind, no matter what, and really doesn't care what people think. Well, to an extent, sort of, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, we'll, we'll get this mother scene, like the mother stuff, which again, I think is a really good nuance portrayal as well, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but at school, no, Pauline doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think, again, this is where the queer relationship comes in with this film. It's not dissimilar to the, the kind of misfit status that we explored when we talked about May, where... Mm. There's something to be said about the outsider or the misfit experience and 
there's something so relatable about the way that she doesn't give a fuck, but also that she's willing to clap back at people. Like, she won't suffer fools, she will stand up for herself, and I think as queer people, that's something that we often wish that we could do, particularly in high school. Yeah, definitely. And, like, I like the comparison of it to May, because Mm -hmm. both of them essentially are about a fear of abandonment, but... I, I don't know, I like Pauline because May, May has this desperation about right. her that makes people really uncomfortable, but Pauline has this, um, she kind of has just so much disdain for everyone else. It's <laughs> 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 deeply relatable to me. <laughs> well, she's, she's also self-reliant, though, and I think there's a catharsis in a lot of Pauline, as, again, as a viewer watching her, you know, she's saying these things to people, and like especially when she claps back to, to the school bitch later. Yes. Like, there's a catharsis oh, yes. there that we don't get in May. Like, I still understand May on a deep level, but it's also frustrating to watch because it's like, oh my god, just stand up for yourself. Whereas Pauline does do that and that's like this I mean again that's the fantasy I had when I was being bullied like I I wish I could have done and said some of the things that Pauline does and says in this film Mm -hmm. oh for sure there's there's a bit in it that I straight up thought was a dream sequence until after the scene because I was like oh yeah because everyone has those fantasies of being like that when you're getting bullied in school and I was like oh that wasn't she straight up did that. Like, mm-hmm. Are we talking about when she beats that bitch up? <laughs> yeah, it was a real good for her moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, enter excision into the hall of good for her films. I love it. Yes. <laughs> okay, so we get a bunch of short scenes. This, this film is actually constructed of relatively short scenes uh, as opposed to kind of drawn out interactions specifically early on so we get a quick introduction to pauline's family dynamic she has a younger sister grace played by ariel winter and she suffers from cystic fibrosis she has a father bob played by roger bart who is a complete pushover and then she has a mother phyllis who is played by tracy lords and she is a controlling god-loving woman who just loves her some gender norms tracy lords is fantastic she in fucking this movie. rocks this movie <laughs> she's amazing <laughs> and it's again it's that against i mean i say against hype and bates mentions this in the commentary where he's like people don't give tracy lord the time of day because they think oh because she did porn mm-hmm. she's not a real actress and he's like well watch this fucking movie and i defy you to tell me she's not an actress Oh, it's the same way that we disparage sex workers and make women feel ashamed about wanting to enjoy sex in any regard. It's like, oh, she did porn, therefore she must, what, not be a person with talent or, like, a human being? It's garbage. Porn takes effort, too, to make, also. like you, Right? <laughs> you better have talent to do porn. That, it's not something unskilled people can do. I think do. the people that, mm-hmm. com- that, that, that condemn porn... I mean, I don't want to see them do porn, but I like to see them try. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I was going to say, oh, I guess those are like the real life Phyllis. Yeah. Just, just so they can like, get, it's like in um, the film Cam, when you see all the hard work that mm-hmm. goes into cam work. And I'm just like, yeah, that takes real dedication and effort to do. You can't just, you know. <laughs> it is fucking it. work. Yes, it is I a mean, job. I was like, yeah, it, it, they're jobs. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they, they may provide entertainment for people, but they are still jobs. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, yep, yep, exactly. Yep. 
I do also want to mention, um, just to digress a tiny bit, I actually do think that Ariel Winter's casting, maybe not even not even just her casting, but the role itself of Grace is so integral to this. Because again, this is such a, kind of, I'm going to say kooky kind of film, that Grace is this like bright shining light of, ugh, again, I'm hesitant to use the word normalcy here, but it's like, she almost feels like she's in a different movie. And I think it grounds the film and Pauline specifically in a way that I don't think would have been successful if we didn't have this character. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I think one of the things, and I'd be interested to hear from any listeners who have disabilities or from anyone who is living with cystic fibrosis, I would love not to know whether this is an accurate portrayal, but whether they feel positive about the way this character is portrayed. Because one of the things I like about Grace is that she isn't sick. Her sickness is one part of her, but she also has a great relationship with Pauline. She wants to kiss boys. You know, she has friends. And I love that she is more well-rounded than just, oh, she's the sick younger sister who becomes the end game for this movie. Yeah, she's so much more than that archetype of that sidekick sort of thing. She's got a real personality, which I liked too. Mm-hmm. And it's and she's juxtaposed. I mean, again, you have this quote unquote sick girl, this character who is juxtaposed against Pauline, who is the one that her mom is, you know, considers unlovable. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There, there's two different perspectives on what sick looks like in this movie, and mm-hmm. Phyllis has her priorities. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will not say that my mother was as bad as Phyllis, but I definitely, like, there, there's times watching Phyllis where I'm, like, the the kind of, like, I don't know, like, verbal assault techniques that she does, I was like, mm-hmm. ooh, that rings very familiar <laughs> to me. See, that's the part I didn't really relate to a lot because my mom is very strong, but she's not very strict or anything like that. She's very encouraging. Mm-hmm. So I kind of saw Phyllis as like so many other people that I've interacted with mm-hmm. in my life, like teachers or just adults that I came across as a teenager that had those same kind of expectations and you'll fit into this box that I need you to be in sort yes. of people. And I, I love that word too, because I do think that she she's controlling and she has expectations and i think she expresses them in a way that pauline does not respond well to but i don't think that she's a bad person no and i think there are little things that are easy to miss in this film that actually explain not excuse but explain a lot of pauline again we have the line early on about her mother where bob says oh yeah if you were your mother like i'd be getting divorce papers oh my god i love that line (laughs) (laughs) But we also get, and I mean, this is later in the film, but that brief conversation between Pauline and Mm -hmm. Phyllis on the couch, where it's Mm -hmm. like this one moment of true understanding between these characters, which again, makes the ending even more tragic, because you're just like, oh, y'all were so close. (laughs) (sighs) I almost want to fast forward to the end, because I I forgot (laughs) how it ends. Like, I remember the surgery, but I forgot the ending, and I gasped yeah. at how powerful it is it's so that fucking ending. good oh we will we'll have plenty to say about it <laughs> yeah okay, okay okay so i'm getting us back on track so yeah, yeah. um so we also meet other adults in pauline's life we have as we mentioned matthew gray goobler uh he is a bates 
junior regular and uh you know he he doesn't do a ton in this movie but it's always fun to see him we've got malcolm mcdowell as her math teacher we've got john waters as reverend william and then we have marlene matlin in a brief role as a school administrator who fucking hates phyllis um okay (laughs) the casting of marlene matlin is great but i also that she gets that line Again, like the, the, the biting humor in this film, but that yes. line that she has where she's like, being in the same room with you and your daughter makes me grateful for my hearing loss. <laughs> it's so offensive and also great. <laughs> I just love it. Like, and, and also, I mean, it's Marley Matlin, so of course she, she will be playing a deaf character, but I love that she's making fun of the way that people treat disability which is just like another layer to this film it doesn't need to be in here and yet bates jr has worked it in because it works seamlessly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i love that so we've already mentioned john waters as this reverend again because phyllis and bob cannot afford an actual psychiatrist for mm-hmm. for pauline they send her to the church for, for the i'm sorry the priest to to counsel her but one of my favorite parts of this film is, I'm sorry, multiple parts, is the prayer scenes that we get with Pauline. Mm-hmm. Mm. Because, Ren, did you, did you grow up religious at all? No, none of my family is religious. And if, if I do, I lean towards things like paganism and stuff. So, okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so, so I did grow up, I grew up Catholic. I talked about my religious upbringing a little bit here. It wasn't, like, terrible, but it was still Catholic. But... The prayer scenes here <laughs> rang so true for me because of, it's kind of how I would pray. Like, I, my praying was very much a conversation with God. I didn't try to always talk to God very much. And it was uh, that, that stereotypical, like, oh, it's when I want something. But right. it was always very blunt. And the way she talks to God in this film, and I love how it's framed. You know, it's very stagey because it's like a, just a black space around her. But it was just like, I don't know. Like, I was like, oh, my God, I've had those conversations. Especially, I mean, I've never asked God to kill someone, I don't think. Um, but, <laughs> but there's definitely been moments where I've been like, oh, my God. Like, I remember praying to God, literally, like, don't make me gay. Like, please don't let me be gay, blah, 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 blah. But, like, having a, an, an, a conversation with an invisible person who wasn't replying, but I was, like, imagining replies being given to me. I don't know. So... I think it's important, these scenes in particular, because they're one of the few times that we get an unfiltered perspective of what Pauline is grappling with. So we get the dream sequences, and this is her idealized self, but then we get these prayer sequences, and they are insight into what she wants and how she is struggling to to verbalize that, to figure out who and what she is. But it's not filtered through this hyper-stylized dream sequence. So I I think they're doing something different, but very complimentary. I mean, it also shows how bland and boring religion is because of how, like, <laughs> the, the setting she's talking to God. And then, yeah, fantasy is, like, is beautiful. Right, yeah. And... I'm not sure if they talked about it on the audio commentary, but I saw somewhere that the reason that she's blacked out, like originally it was just going to be her in her room, but apparently they kept moving the furniture and they didn't want to, like they realized it wouldn't look the same. So they were like, uh, just black it all out. And then that way we don't have to worry about it. I mean, that works with the budget too, but I would have liked to have known what this all would have looked like if they'd have had a bigger budget and more people. Mm, but, like, right. I wonder how different it would have been end result-wise. Hmm. I mean, it pains I me. Mean, unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to see that because I don't ever see a remake no. of Excision happening, at least anytime soon. 
It's not really necessary to be no. fair. It's an excellent yeah. film as it is. So just 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 leave that one alone, guys. It's fine. Honestly, I agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I hear what you're saying because I I often look at low budget films and think, okay, what would it look like with a little bit more money? But I actually think that this film is doing so much with so little that's actually part of its charm. Yeah, I just wonder how much of that was a compromise or like yeah. how much of it was choice is kind of what I wanted to want to know with them. <laughs> I think, Joe, did we discuss something recently where we were like, oh, like, you know, th- there were decisions made because of the low budget, because of the lack of funds. So it, f- oh, it saw actually, where it's like it forced them oh. to, to get creative with things because yeah. of their budget. So I also do wonder, I mean, I get what you're saying, Ram, but I'm also kind of like, but I wonder though how much of the success of this movie comes from those compromises. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm glad that it ended up the way it is. I just like want to know how mm-hmm. much of it was on purpose. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Tell me your secrets. <laughs> yes. Okay, so it's evident from both her provocative necrophilic dreams, as well as the questions that Pauline is asking in class, that she is fascinated in part by sex, but more so medicine and overall the body. And death. And death, yeah. So Phyllis also has plans for Pauline. Part of what she would like her daughter to do is go to cotillion classes so that she (laughs) can become a proper lady, despite the fact that Pauline is several years too old for this. My uh, my husband grew up in West Texas, uh, which is a very, very, very conservative part of the United States. And um, a lot of his girlfriends were, were debutantes and debutante balls there. God, this is a world that makes no sense to me at all. I feel like I see it on Same. CW shows and maybe the OC. That's about it. <laughs> I yeah, I've only ever heard about this through Gilmore Girls. <laughs> yeah, there we go. There we go. <laughs> yes. The good thing about it is that it's a great placeholder, even if you don't understand the nuance of what is involved. Where you're just like, oh, it's a bit of a ritualized thing that is designed to make children act like adults but in the ways that adults want them to act yeah yeah it's oddly unsexual though isn't it yes yeah <laughs> un- un- i think i just coined that word but yes it's not sexy <laughs> that reminds me of the <laughs> kind of decorum that you'd expect in a jane austen text or something from pre-1900 <laughs> yeah like a period piece where it's all about okay make sure you're using the right fork and dance properly but also don't touch and definitely don't think of the other person naked I mean, that makes sense. The, you know, all the ideals are antiquated, so the style might as well be too. Yeah. Right. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's fun that we have this cotillion set up on one hand, and it does come back into play later on. But really, the early part of the film is more focused on Pauline's efforts to not be the kind of girl that goes to cotillion. She wants to get laid, and she would like <laughs> to lose her virginity to local hottie Adam, who is played by real life hottie jeremy sumter oh i'm such a dirty old man <laughs> okay no no okay so I, I i had to go back and check how old i was because he was peter pan in this peter pan movie from 2003 yes and i remember i remember thinking oh my god he's so hot like oh my god but like he's peter pan he's a boy mm-hmm. luckily jeremy sumter and i are literally like weeks apart in age <laughs> <laughs> so oh, you are safe so, it wasn't me, like, watching Josh Hutcherson and Zathura being like, oh my god, he's gonna grow up and be so hot when I'm, like, three years older than him. Uh, <laughs> so, but yes, um, big, big thumbs up on Jeremy Sumter. I think he is a very, very pretty person. Yes. Well, I think I'm the only person here that doesn't have a crush on Jeremy Sumter. <laughs> we all have types, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Look, 
Red, we we have identified that you like Pauline, and that is okay. (laughs) It's very true. (laughs) Why do you think she singles out Adam, though? Like, I mean, do you think it's just because she he is the most popular? Does she actually find him? I don't ever, for once, feel like she. I mean, she doesn't have feelings for him. It's just I don't know. You'll do type situation. (laughs) I think she knows he's easy because he's so dumb that he will just say yes, even though he quote unquote like finds her repulsive. She knows that all she has to do is be forward with him, and he'll respond. I mean, so she gets with him right after she hears his girlfriend talking about him not being able to get it up and stuff, right Mm -hmm, on the bleachers, and I think like. The way they talk about him, I think Pauline probably just thinks he will be easy to control and right. she'll be the one in that situation who has all the power. Which she is. Which she yeah, is. she, which she, she does. really does. <laughs> yes, and the girl in question is Natalie, played by Molly McCook. And I do love that there's this mean girl setup where you think, oh, the movie's going to be about Pauline having to fend off Natalie being a bitch nope. to her. And Natalie yeah. is... I mean, she's in here, but she's not a character. None of these teens are characters, really. I mean, so I don't like the character of Natalie, but like for the the purposes she serves in the film, I like. <laughs> um, but yeah, like the film ditches her after a certain point because again, right. this is a Pauline Grace Phyllis story. Yes, and and sorry, that's yeah. what I meant. I realized it probably didn't sound like that, but I just meant it's not their story, so they don't matter in the same way like they come in they do what's needed of them and then we go back to who matters which is pauline grace and phyllis mm-hmm. yeah yeah i do like how direct and forward pauline is when she propositions adam and how uh <laughs> but but, but <laughs> just take it aback by it but that's the thing though and i mean like again i, th- I think there's something I mean, at least for me where i'm like i tend to speak my mind a lot i tend to have my foot in my mouth a lot Yes, you're regularly asking people to take your virginity. We've established this. <laughs> no, but, but, but there's something, like, freeing and, like, powerful about watching this woman just be like, yeah, let's fuck. Oh, my God. It's amazing. It's fantastic. Mm. But it also, like, isn't the societal norm. No. At least in the, I'm sorry, not for a woman to demand sex. That's not what I mean. But, like, <laughs> this, this method of delivery, this method of, like, hey, let's do it. Like, again, it's... Credit to McCord's performance, too, for the vocal inflection she gives Pauline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I totally agree, though. I mean, one of the things I love about this film is that it's a woman unapologetically liking sex yep. and wanting sex, and she does not care what anyone around her thinks about the fact that she mm-hmm. feels that way. And and I mean, to the point where she, I mean, she's so blunt that she decides and tells people, I'm going to have sex on my period the yes. first time I do it. <laughs> and the sole reason for that, though, was just for birth control reasons, right? Kind of? I don't know. I think so. But I think it also does play into that idea of abjection where she's fascinated, mm. you know, she very deliberately makes Adam go down on her. I think anticipating what his reaction will be, but also because I think she wants to see her menzies on his face. I I think that could definitely be true. I also know that a lot of people believe it feels better when they are menstruating, so that it could have been about how much pleasure she was going to get from the situation. Uh, Okay. 
And she would have known that because, of course, she's all up in them books doing her research. Yeah, she's obsessed with the body, <laughs> so she would know. <laughs> I will also say that um, the bloody cunnilingus scene is taken directly from Richard Bates Jr.'s life. His first sexual encounter, he went down on a woman who was on her period, and he had a distinct memory of looking at his bloody face in the mirror. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I bet that's memorable. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) This is evocative and striking. I'm going to make sure to put this in my first feature. But again, though, I mean, and I'll just toss this grenade in here now. We have a male, (laughs) presumably straight male director, making this movie, imbuing him into the main character who is a woman. Right. Which I think is also fascinating. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I feel like I've had so many conversations about who shouldn't be speaking for which groups. And I think we're at a very interesting time politically, socioculturally, about how do we negotiate things where people are creating art about people other than themselves. And I think it's partially because it so often goes badly and we're so hungry for representation that we want people who are typically marginalized or shoved off to the side to have the opportunity to make good art. But, you know, I would also hold up something like this that reflects the fact that it doesn't always have to be the bad situation that we're so accustomed to seeing. Like, you can have a man who can write women well or... I think also what you talked about earlier, Trace, is that there's parts of Annalyn McCord in here. So that tells me that maybe what we're also seeing is a really good collaborative effort at art mm-hmm. between a man and a woman so that we get the characters right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I, I know there is that whole discourse about who should be making stuff and what, but let's not forget that when people put those kind of... I don't know, when people put that on at films, it kind of requires people to like come out about things they might not be comfortable with like especially when it's about making films about trauma and they're like oh well you can't speak on this if you don't have that trauma or whatever and it's like yeah but they should also not have to come out and declare it just to be able to actually express it too yeah there's a lot of burden of proofing when it comes to something like that and it's like okay maybe not assume that people haven't gone through something uh and don't ask them to come out about this if they're not ready to Yeah, I mean, like, criticize the piece of work if that's what needs criticizing, but I don't know, like, you shouldn't need to kind of have people tell you stuff like that that they might not be comfortable with just so you'll watch the film. Like, if it's a good enough piece of work, it'll stand for itself anyway. Yeah, right. And I think in some ways, people are also really asking for the step back. So it's, it's not that we're needing people to declare themselves and say, okay, I can make this because I have this, or I've gone through this, or I identify as this. I think really one of the things that we're talking about is systemic barriers that don't allow people even access, right? Like if we're talking about people from marginalized groups not being able to make their art, it's often Mm -hmm. things to do with like money and access and privilege. And so I don't know. Part of me is like, well, the conversation needs to be far bigger than who has the right to make a movie or write a movie about a certain thing. Like, we have to undo the barriers that prevent people from even being able to get their feet in the door in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And like, I totally think that's like, it's very specific to things like trauma or people who aren't out yet, but also don't 
have like straight people writing gay stories don't have cis people playing trans characters like Mm because that is a different thing to what I'm saying which is like Mm -hmm. you know don't require people to give you like a therapy session on themselves just to (laughs) make a film to prove prove that they're worthy of telling whatever story they're trying to tell yeah yeah exactly (laughs) yeah no I think that's a very important thing Mm -hmm. okay so in between Pauline propositioning Adam and then the act actually going down in this cheap motel, we do have this one scene, and I bring it up just because I do think it's important, because so much of this movie is fixated on Pauline, and we're not getting to see as much from the other characters' perspectives, but there is this one scene between Phyllis and Grace, mm-hmm. where Phyllis is talking about some girl that she doesn't like that grace is talking about so phyllis tells her stay away from charlotte she sounds trashy and grace says no she's not she only dresses like it (laughs) it's a funny exchange but i think it also tells us a lot about who these characters are and it's not when pauline is there so that they can stand for themselves as proper characters in their own right But we also get this like important scenes between Pauline and Grace. Like we get the scene where she's drawing chalk around her and tells her, I'm going to lose my virginity, which it's like, oh, mm-hmm. they have this kind of relationship. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's very sweet. <laughs> yeah. And like Grace even yeah. stands up for her sister when yes. they first interact with Kimberly, who is the jump rope neighbor who is kind of cunty to her. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that scene. And I, I really like that again, because... A lot of times when you have a character with a disability or something, they normally aren't the protector. But in this situation, like, Grace is Pauline's protector, even though she's the younger sister and, you know, she's got a disability and Mm -hmm. she's getting increasingly ill throughout the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they they take care of each other, right? It actually reminded me a little bit of the sibling relationship in Ginger Snaps, too. Yes. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, it's also like, I mean, I I could easily see a version of this movie where it's like, oh, let's have the sisters not like each other. And I think it's just kind of, because that's often the case in movies, like where it's like, oh, like sibling rivalry. And I just think it's kind of refreshing that you have sisters that not only love each other, but yes, do support each other, do stand up for each other, which unfortunately is the downfall of both of them. (laughs) But (laughs) (laughs) Don't take away the... The end result, take away the message. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so that we do have this sex scene. And I think one of the things that I like the most, and we hinted at it, is how not just progressive she is, but how assertive she is when it comes to asking for what she wants and doing what she wants. But particularly in this scene, I love how Pauline insults Adam's, like, the size of his manhood. Okay, no, 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 no. But see, I, I don't think she means it as an insult. I think she is stating something that is a fact. It's a which fact, is also, yeah. Which is, which is also something where I yeah. kind of find her to be more on the spectrum, or something like that, where it's just like, oh, I'm observing something and I'm stating it. So yeah, I, I, I do love this exchange, and I think it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> of course he's gonna get fucking upset over the size of his dick. <laughs> but he gets upset about it, and then he starts to pull his pants up, and then she says, like, no, we're still going to do this. It's fine. And then presumably he gets hard enough to fuck her, which is something that we already had confirmation from Natalie. His girlfriend was an issue. So I kind of love this idea that boys also want an assertive girl who's going to make their dick hard by telling them what to do. Hmm. I didn't even think about that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um... (laughs) So, yes, we are now up to 
the abortion dream sequence where Pauline prays to God that even if she does get pregnant, she will simply have an abortion. And then, yeah, we get this sugar candy colored abortion sequence in which a doctor puts the fetus into an oven. And it explodes. (laughs) Yes, it does. I cannot understate that enough. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to have to add content warnings to this one, aren't I? When I was taking notes, I was like, okay, let me make a list. I got abortion, necrophilia, because we do have a fantasy with her mm-hmm. making out with a corpse that is missing the top half of its head. We're, we're really hitting necrophilia out of the park <laughs> this year, Joe. Uh, what is it with necrophilia? Beautiful necrophilia. That is mm-hmm. the new title of this podcast. Yep. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think Pauline would like that, too. Oh, 100%. <laughs> Sorry, just to go back to the fact that, yes, we have previously talked about necrophilia a couple weeks ago when we were talking about (laughs) Ruby in The Neon Demon. I think that Ruby and Pauline would actually get along very well. Yeah, I can see that. I haven't seen The Neon Demon, so... Oh, Ren, if you like the dream sequences in this, I think you would quite enjoy The Neon Demon. I was like, Jenna Malone 100% fucks a corpse in that movie, so (laughs) have at it. I have been instructed to watch it multiple times by your guest for that episode too oh i'm sure oh, okay <laughs> because devon is he's a super fan he really is yeah he's told me like two or three times i've watched that film. <laughs> oh my god that's fantastic it's like a one-man advocacy for that so we all have those movies though don't we i oh, mean yes like ren you have excision i have zombievers and joe what do you have Pick a Cronenberg, any Cronenberg. Yeah, pick a Cronenberg. <laughs> <laughs> I love that out of all of us, y'all are zombies. <laughs> so we, we always do special birthday episodes for us where we just pick a movie to, uh, with no restrictions. And my first birthday movie was Zombievers. <laughs> I heard that episode and it is actually the reason I watched Zombievers. <laughs> oh my god, did you like it? Uh, Zombievers, not the episode. <laughs> I, I did, but I was not sober, so... <laughs> That's enough. okay. That's probably the way to do it. If yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. All right, so the next morning, Grace learns that her friend from Cystic's Fibrosis Camp has died, and this upsets her, but it also gives us insight into what the reality of her illness is. So she will die from this disease unless she gets a life-saving medical treatment, which is a lung transplant, and... It's important to note that Pauline also knows this. Um, Can we also talk about, I mean, I don't know what to say about it, but CF camp. Mm -hmm. The way it's just brought up is like, oh, yeah, we're just going to ship you off to this camp. But but again, Grace likes it. Yeah, it's a camp with other kids so that they know how to take care of her, but she also gets to have fun. It's just, um, I mean, again, I just think back to like, for you gay guys, let's go ship you off to a to a degayification camp. Like, oh uh, no, th- no, it's not like that at all. No, no, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I know they, <laughs> they, they can't de cystic fibrosis her at CF camp, but <laughs> but oh, it's God. just like one of those things where it's like, oh yeah, like let's put you somewhere. So I, I know that she likes it, although, but I love that Pauline's reaction to it is, what did she do wrong? <laughs> like, why are you punishing her with this? <laughs> no, I definitely get what you're saying though, because it's kind of a way for like the parents to kind of ship her away for a bit which you know but I think it's probably also one of the places that has you know accessibility for yeah. her because 
most places aren't accessible for disabled people so I can imagine it's nice to go somewhere for once where that's actually taken into consideration right Mm -hmm. yeah and like Grace would be among like-minded people so she would have a sense of community but she also wouldn't have to deal with people looking at her and pitying her or misunderstanding how to accommodate her and those kinds of things like that that's the benefit of going to these kinds of things and there are you know queer versions of this nowadays because yeah i, I was literally gonna just say a book about it. <laughs> oh my god are there really <laughs> but like the good kind yeah i i just thought like you know it's like the way we go to places where we are with queer community it's the same mm-hmm. sort of attitude of oh it's nice to just be around our people for once yeah you know i think there's a, that's just the age gap there you know i think i think i just missed <laughs> <For sure>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i missed that <laughs> Yeah, it was, was not a thing, but also, like, our parents would not have sent us to something Mm-mm. like that because they would not have been open to it. No. Yeah, I mean, I, I've never heard of, pl- like, places like that, but clubs and stuff or right, yeah. bars mm-hmm. or, like, anywhere where basically outcasts would go, like, yeah, I get that. That's it's nice. <laughs> That's what sort of was for me anyway, like, because yeah. we didn't have camps specifically designated for it. Mm-hmm. Any youthful listeners here? Youthful. Any young listeners here? Uh-oh. <laughs> youths. Hello, fellow <laughs> teens. Please educate me. No, but I mean, I'm just, I mean, I'm curious, you know? It's like, I mean, I, I just, well, I can Google it, whatever, it's fine. Don't, 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 don't tell me. I'll no, Google it's it. fine. Everyone, please tweet at Grandpa Trace. Uh, let him know <laughs> what the youth camp is like for queer people. Yeah, did anyone else think of the uh, 30 Rock moment with Steve Buscemi where it's like, hello, fellow youths? Yes. <laughs> I mean, again, like, if you tell me, like, a queer youth camp, my mind goes somewhere negative. Oh my god, so dark. I'm happy that's not the case. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, at school, Pauline cleverly manages to find a way to tell head bitch Natalie that she has slept with Adam. And then she also tells Reverend William that she will no longer need his services. So she is beginning to cut ties now that she has achieved what she is looking for. Bye-bye, John Waters. You filmed your scenes in one day, but God love you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's interesting, right? Because we mentioned Tracy Lords being against typecasting. This feels actually very much in John Waters' camp, where he would, of course, show up to play somebody that he, in real life, would completely disagree with. But... Mm. I wonder, do you think it was just the novelty of casting him as a priest? Or was it, hey, can we get John Waters in this? It'll help us to sell this movie. Tracy Lords actually suggested him for the role because he's the one that cast her in films. Like, he put her in Crybaby, and I think she was in two or three of his other films. Sorry, I've been doing a John Waters watch this past year. <laughs> but no, she, she she told Bates to like, hey, let's do it. And then they and she, she arranged the meeting for them. Oh, okay. That's cool. Amazing. I'm so glad she did because yeah. it was such a good choice for that role. Uh, I mean, the second he appears on screen and you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> this is what you're doing. <laughs> Again, it gives you a good read on, okay, this is what the movie is when we've got John Waters showing up to play a priest. I don't know if I, I mean, I, maybe this may not be the right term, but in my notes, I called it the metatextual irony of the casting of Tracy Lords and John Waters. Because it's just like, again, mm-hmm. if you know them, you're like, oh, well, this is literally not who they are in real life. It's so great. Yeah. I mean, that's what casting against type is, but it's savvy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah and what's great is like, if you know them, then it's kind of an extra layer yes. on the 
comedy of the film, but if you don't know them, they do such an amazing job as right. those characters anyway, you would never guess that they were typecast. Yes. Right. <laughs> like, in other films, there's different things, you know? <laughs> Very true. So we're now up to the locker room sequence where Natalie and her lackey Abigail, who is played by Natalie Dreyfus, insult Pauline by comparing her to a little boy and a lesbian. Yeah, uh, locker room <laughs> queer bullying. Mm-hmm. For someone who's not queer, again, uh, it's, um, but again, this is like this fantasy of mine where it's like, Pauline's not even phased by it at all. She literally tells Natalie <laughs> that her vagina looks like a diseased axe wound. <laughs> oh my god, I love you, Pauline. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> this whole scene, it was too relatable to be quite honest for the most part but I love like Trissa like I want to be able to have Pauline's reaction and just I love that all the way through because I did the same thing as a teenager where it was that sort of thing like you never let them see you break right. like maybe once they're gone yeah right. you'll be like I hear everything but you know you keep that stone-faced fuck you eyes oh, sort yeah. of <laughs> and Pauline does it so well <laughs> Yeah, it, it, there's there's a, there's a wit to Pauline and her responses, and I'm just like, oh, I'm jealous of that. Like, I wish I had that when I was 17. <laughs> oh, yeah. The acerbic barbs that she has at the ready at all times are just oh, so commendable. <laughs> I mean, like, I had the attitude, but I never had the... I'd have been that person where it's like, give me 20 minutes and I could think of right? this. Yes, Come no, back, absolutely. but not in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> that was me. I'm on my way home crying. And fuck, I just thought of what I should have said. God damn it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that actually reminds me a lot of the other film, Zach and Miri Megapano, where he, he would go to say something and he'd be like, fuck, they're gone. <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's the movie that introduced because I mean I didn't know who Tracy Lords was, and that's the movie that introduced me to Tracy Lords. Me too. And <laughs> then I watched Excision, and I was like, "She's got range." Yeah, right. <laughs> yes, I do love that movie too. It's good. Me too. So this is interesting, though. So we've talked about how admirable Pauline's response is, but it does seem. Not to bother her, but it does kind of clue her in because that night she's actually looking at herself in the mirror and she says to Grace that she wants to get surgery to reshape her belly button. So she is aware of how other people see her and sometimes it affects her and other times she decides not to let it bother her. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll get to the point coming up where maybe not right away, but like, yeah, where it visibly bothers her. Right, yes. Um, First, we need to introduce the cold sore. So she also notices that she has a cold sore. And this is where we get a flashback. It's the only flashback in the film where it's revealed that she contracted the disease from her father when he saved her from drowning as a child. And it's very much like, okay, dad saved her from dying and mom got mad that he had a cold sore and gave her mouth to mouth. Would have been better to have let her drown, apparently. <laughs> I'm not a fan of asking why is this here, but like, and I'm not saying this in a mean way, but like, why is this here? Like this whole cold, cold sore, I'm going to call it a subplot? I think it's just insight into how her parents differ in terms of the way that they act as parents to their children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love those scenes. And I, I, I get cold sores and I would get them in school and they were really just... 
like they were one of the things that can really affect your self-esteem because mm-hmm. they're just so on your face like mm-hmm. that and so I actually really loved that little inclusion and the way she just constant like she will hold that over her dad till the day she dies I have no doubt <laughs> <laughs> yep yep well, then she's about to weaponize that cold sore, too. Indeed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. So, Cotillion is just around the corner. Phyllis is not going to let her off the hook. She gives her a dress, which prompts Pauline to orchestrate an elaborate scenario wherein she takes Ipsicol. No. Ipecac. Ipecac, thank you. Uh, so, I only know what that is because that's uh, how Karen Carpenter died. Oh, God. Okay, oh, wow. Trey's dark. <laughs> I love that you just said that was dark in the middle of this film discussion. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I was doing a quick search because I was like, oh, right, because Richard Bates Jr. said that um, he puts a lot of Todd Salonz's aesthetic in this film. That makes sense. And this film has a lot in common, I think, with his movie Welcome to the Dollhouse. But I was thinking with Ipecac because there's a movie called Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story. Mm -hmm. It's a student film about... Karen Carpenter mate told entirely with Barbie dolls. Yep. But that's Todd Haynes, not Todd Salons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ah, so close. Yeah, but but Todd Haynes is a very like he did like Far From Heaven and Poison. Like he's a very po- like he does a lot of queer films. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. So yeah, she does take it so that she will puke in Mr. Cooper's class all over Abigail. <laughs> oh, it's so good. <laughs> Which is great. And uh, you know, then she gets sent home sick and Phyllis does not buy it for a fucking second and still <laughs> makes her go to Cotillion. It's great. <laughs> also, she has that line, because uh, again, so, so Pauline, her rebelliousness, she's like, I'm going to get married one day to a black guy. Phyllis's response, well, don't expect him to be faithful. African-American men are notorious adulterers. It's like, okay, so she's not only like Oof. a conservative religious woman, but she's yeah. also a total racist. I mean, unsurprisingly, a total racist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> it's so tricky, though, right? Because, A, Tracy Lords is doing such a great job of making her human, right? Mm-hmm. We don't always like Phyllis, but we can see the humanity in her. But then she also, yes, has all of these fucking backwards, antiquated notions of what boys and girls should be, of who it's appropriate to date, how it's okay to act. And you just think, Phyllis, you have become your fucking mom. And also, what the fuck, lady? You need to take a step (laughs) back. Well, that's what she's afraid of. (laughs) But see, I don't think she's become her mom, because based on the conversation she has with Pauline on that couch, I get the feeling that her mom... Because she says, she says something that's like, what my mother did to me, it was worse than any words could do. So I think her mother was physically abusive to her. Interesting. I always read that conversation as reflective that her mother hurt her, and now she is replicating the cycle of violence. Maybe not in the exact same way, but like she has basically parroted the way that she was raised. Is generational trauma the appropriate term for this? Um... I, I know, I know. I, like, I mean, yeah. No. I, but oh, yeah, I guess maybe a cycle of abuse. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's a more appropriate term, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Psychoanalysis podcast. Uh, I know. We, we need you to come <laughs> in and help us with all the terminology. People are probably yelling here. at me right now. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> oh, boy. So she does go to Cotillion. And she tries to make friends with a young nerdy girl who I think she sees something of herself in. This is where we get the, uh, (laughs) what do you think these boys see in all these overly made up cum dumpsters? Mm -hmm. Oh my God. (laughs) And these are like 13 year old girls. (laughs) Yes. Yep. 
because she is an 18 year old who is at a cotillion with 13 year olds <sighs> she then asks the girl if she plans to have any work done so that sends her away and then she is asked to dance by a boy who mistakes her for a special needs person and when he remarks about her cold sore she spits in his face <laughs> And kisses Respect. him. Yes. Spits in his face and then also kisses him when she is challenged by her mother. Mm. <laughs> that is the end of our cotillion affair. <laughs> I mean, that's one way to end a cotillion, right? Right. <laughs> this isn't the yes. OC or the Gilmore Girls where we just get a fight or some, uh, you know, some petty differences between the girls. <laughs> this is no. like, okay, you need to get the fuck out of here. Pauline's going to go steal a boat. She's in like season six, Rory. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> She's if Rory went down a very, very dark path. <laughs> okay, here's the thing. How would Pauline react to Rory Gilmore? Oh. <laughs> I mean, the thing with Rory is, as I've got, I used to like her when I was a teenager, but as I've gotten older, I find Rory kind of insufferable. Oh, yes. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I agree with that. When I when I was a teenager, I was like, oh, I like to read. I see a lot of myself yeah. in Rory, mm-hmm. and as an adult, I'm like, wow, she's the worst. She's the worst. <laughs> she's such twat. a brat. Yeah, and I'm just like, Lane is where it's at, frankly. But. Oh man, no. When, when, when I'm sorry, whenever Emily like goes, you're you're. I've never noticed how spoiled you are, Rory. I'm like, yes, tell her, <laughs> lead her to filth. I would love to see Pauline interact with Emily oh. from Galangos. <laughs> well, because, because Emily would be sending her to Cotillion. Yeah. <laughs> and this has been Excising Gilmore Girls. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. You know what? There actually is a, a good, a good like crossover of horror fans and Gilmore Girls fans because there oh, I sure. found some surprising people who I'm like, oh my god, you watch Gilmore Girls? <laughs> Yeah, I find this to be true as well. I know a lot of horror fans that watch Galagos. Okay, okay, I'm okay, sorry. Okay. So yep. over. Yeah, yeah. Got it, got it. Okay. So we we now come to a bit of a brief panning montage, and we're just taking stock of where every member of the household is, but we see that Pauline is listening to Grace cough in the night. So the next day she skips school so that she can go and research lungs at the library. When she gets home, this does not endear her to mom, so she gets a slap from Phyllis, and then she throws Mm. food at her mother over dinner. So we're down into petty bullshit between these two. Yeah, their relationship is a time. (laughs) Yeah. But then we we get this moment that's coming up right now. Yeah, so this is where Phyllis is kind of scream confessing to Bob that their oldest is impossible to love. And Pauline is literally outside the bedroom listening to this, and we see her crying. It's really the only kind of true moment, like an emotional response that we see from Pauline. Yeah, this is like the only time she cares what anyone thinks of her, and it's... That scene breaks my heart listening to that conversation. But that's the thing, right? Like, this, she has this incredibly adversarial relationship with her mother, yet... Mm-hmm. Yet she still and she, she puts on this air of confidence, which she I mean, she does have. But this moment where she breaks and it's like, OK, so deep down, you still do really seek your mother's approval. Really? And that is something I think that I can relate to 100 percent. And I'm sure a lot of people can as well, where it's like, I don't like you. I don't want to give you what you want, but I still want your approval. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely relate to that because like as a kid, like Pauline, I, I was that person that looked at everyone with 
I hate you face. <laughs> um, you know, like I said, I'd, you'd never let anyone see you break. And it was moments like that when no one knew you were listening or something where you did. And it was just so humanizing. Yeah. Yeah, it is so relatable, too, because I, I feel like the people that we crave acceptance and love from are often the people who either love us the least or that we have the most fraught relationship with. Mm-hmm. And that does make this so relatable. But I think this is an integral moment in this film, because not only does it set up the finale, but it reinforces the fact that as strong as Pauline often looks, she is still a teenage girl and she still wants love from her mom. It's also a bit of a tonal yeah. shift, isn't it? Because yeah, most, I mean, granted, uh, there are disturbing things in this film that we've seen before. We, we haven't gone into every fantasy, but like, again, we get the basic gist. But this is, to me, the first time where it's like, oh, this is like really heavy. And I, I realize I'm saying that like <laughs> when we just had like the baby being put in the oven, but that was like, it wasn't real. It was a fantasy. Whereas right. this is this is like a, a serious shift for the film, but mm-hmm. it works. Oh, yeah. Because of these yeah. actresses. Yeah. I feel like this is the moment that cements that we are not watching a satire. We're not watching just a kind of trashy independent film. Mm -hmm. We're actually watching a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. And it gets you even more invested in their relationships because before you kind of like Pauline, you were like, well, I don't really have to care about the relationship between her and her mother because Pauline doesn't care. And then right. you're like, oh, she does care. Yeah, oh, oh that's good. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> you're right. I like that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> the next day, Kimberly, who I, I, sorry, I didn't mention it earlier. She's played by Cole Bernstein. This is the judgy neighbor girl. Oh, the, I just called mm. her jump rope girl in my notes. <laughs> yeah. Fair. yeah, me too. I mean, she does. She's not a character except to jump rope and make snide remarks. She's at literally Pauline. a body bag in this movie. So, <laughs> <laughs> sure. oh dear. <clears throat> oh, the phrasing. <laughs> so she observes Pauline picking up a dead bird, and then at home, Pauline dissects and licks the blood before poorly disposing of the organs in the toilet. I'm sorry girl, you're going to have to clean the toilet way better than that if you think that no one's going to notice because there is blood (laughs) everywhere. Well, she clogs it up anyway. (laughs) Right, yes. Also a surprising amount of shit talk in this movie because we have that, whenever she's confronting the girls in the locker room earlier, she's like, can you make it quick? I got to take a shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's another way that Pauline, again, is like, you know, because girls aren't supposed to say that they take shits. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And again, she's just like, I don't care what girls are meant to do. I'm going to talk about bodily fluids and be disgusting. Exactly. And in that sense, that's where she's saying... I refuse to adhere to gender norms that say women can't be disgusting or interested in talking about their bodies and like its processes. Like that's what's fascinating, right? She's a girl who loves STEM. She talks about shit. Paulina's such a fascinating, diverse character in that regard. Like her interests are so varied. Yeah, and everything about her personality seems to be like a rebellion of some sort against like whether it's gender norms are her mom's expectations are like everything is just a rebellion for her (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yep so in addition to dissecting this bird she also begins experimenting with grace's oxygen mask so it's kind of like oh are you starting to put the pieces together (laughs) (laughs) 
So the next day, this is where we get mom trying to apologize to daughter. So she does talk about her own bad relationship. And Pauline, it almost seems as though she half listens, but then decides that she can't be bothered to care. Like she's unwilling to meet her mother even halfway. So she just walks away. And that's the frustrating thing. I mean, because yeah, you're kind of, even as the viewer going through this kind of emotional tug of war where you're like, oh, I want them to make amends. It's like, oh mm-hmm. my God, but this mom is insufferable. So no, I am on Pauline's side. But then like when, when Phyllis opens up, you're like, oh my God, but like I feel for her now a little mm-hmm. bit, which again is surprising given how horrendous this character is. Yes. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Phyllis always seems to me like she was one of those people who... I don't, I don't think she wanted to end up the way she was. And then Mm-mm. there's times when you can kind of see that she doesn't want to be that person, but mm-hmm. she also feels like she has to be the one to hold everyone else in line. And that's kind of what I think she thinks makes her like that person in the end. Well, and that's the thing too. She's sending her daughter to quote unquote therapy because I don't consider priest counseling therapy. No, that's no. that's not therapy. That's <laughs> not real therapist people. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is though that while yes, Pauline probably should go see a therapist, like Phyllis should too. Yes. Phyllis has a lot of things to work out clearly yeah. trauma-based that she needs to work out. Everyone should be in therapy. Yes. Everyone. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> 100%. If you take away one thing from this film, it is that we all need a little bit of therapy and some of us need a lot. <laughs> that yes. sounded facetious. I'm seconding what you're both saying. No, I, I get it. <laughs> and not from a not from a priest. Not, not from, from a priest. A priest. They, they are that's not the real licensed medic. I mean, again, even a gen- even a general counselor is fine, but just not a priest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, go speak to somebody who has been through a an degree. educational system. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so we then overhear, so Pauline hears Natalie and Abigail speaking outside of the house, and when the family goes outside, they see that the entire house has been defaced and toilet papered. This instigates a slow motion smackdown at the school. I have to point out, though, I love, again, the comedy comes back here, because we (laughs) overhear the girls arguing about how to spell cunt properly, be it with a C or with a K. And that's funny already, but then we get the reveal that they spray-painted Paulina's a cunt on the garage door, Mm -hmm. and they spelled it with a K, crossed it out, and put a C over it. (laughs) I did love that their rationale was, well, if we spell it wrong, then it's just a reflection of who Paulina is, because she's so stupid, she would misspell it. But they're the ones who are misspelling it. (laughs) Oh my god, I love that. And that's, I mean, that word's a bigger deal over there, I believe, than it is here. Because people say that in England all the time. Well, I've 100% had someone tweet me and been like, oh, that really took me aback when Trace said cunt. And I was like... Yeah, you need to stop saying it. And it's like, no, we're not going to do that. Yeah, unfortunately, that's that's just me. But but no, because we had an Australian on the show once too. And he was like, oh, we say that all the time. (laughs) Yeah, like, I'm friends with quite a few Australians and we all just sit all the time and then if we sit in front of an American they're like really taken aback by it and I'm just like it's still very it's a very dirty word for us yeah and I'm like fine but just don't be cunty about me saying it honestly <laughs> I will take this time listeners if you have do have an issue with the word cunt please go back and listen to our hostile part 2 episode where Joe goes into a deep dive of the origins of the word cunt and why it's actually maybe okay to use sometimes for Americans yeah yeah, <laughs> the way that we have decided we don't like it is misogynistic. 
Yep. Yeah, the etymology of that word is actually quite interesting. So yes. I encourage the same thing. All <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. So Pauline attacks the girls, mostly Natalie. She bangs her head into the locker, which gets her suspended indefinitely. Mm-hmm. I love that that wasn't a dream because I so thought it was the first time and I was like oh this is a really cool dream sequence and I was like oh she fucking did it yes Polly yeah. I always think and this is such a silly movie to compare to but I always think about the like, monster-in-law the Jane Fonda Jennifer Lopez movie because oh there's so <laughs> no, no 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 because there's so many I love that movie but there's so many scenes in that movie where like oh. J-Lo beats the shit she bashes yeah. Jane Fonda's head into a cake it's like oops it's just her fantasy yeah. <laughs> and I'm like oh no God. I I haven't seen that, but I'm now considering watching it. I do love J-Lo, though, so, like, it, it, It's maybe. not, quote-unquote, wasted good. opportunity. I think it's really funny. I think it has a lot of really funny moments, and it also introduced me to Adam Scott, who plays the gay best friend. That introduced you to Adam Scott? That film? Yep. Wow. Wow. Okay. 2007. It's 2007. I mean, hello, Hellraiser Bloodline is right there, Trace. Oh, I was I, I hadn't seen Hellraiser Bloodline in 2007. <laughs> I watched it for the first time like four years ago. <laughs> how dare you, sir. I, I would just like to know how many people listening to this episode expected us to compare Excision to Gilmore Girls and Monster the Jello film this much. <laughs> this is just Thursday for me. <laughs> but you're so right. Yeah. We contain multitudes. We do. Yeah. That's true. Did you both catch the fact that there's a picture of George Bush in Principal Campbell's office? No. Oh my god, what? No. <laughs> this is the Ray Weiss character, right? Yes, yeah. Oh man, no, I did not. But their production designer quit a week into filming, so this was clearly one of those uh, college freshmen <laughs> that decided to do that. I'm just going to sneak this in here, see if anybody notices. And... Wow, I did not see that at all. <laughs> it tracks though, right? They're like in this suburban town. I mean, I, they filmed in LA, but we don't really know what part of America they're in in the film. No, this is anywhere USA. Yeah, conservative small town. Yeah. Yeah, I like that about it though, definitely. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So the suspension indefinite does escalate things at home. This is where both parents call Pauline's interest in medicine delusional. And this is one of her more fascinating dreams to me. So she dreams that she's some kind of prophet who's being worshipped by acolytes. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think it tells us something about her messiah complex, which is what is going to get her into so much fucking trouble coming up. But it again, it feels like she's rebelling against her parents, even in the dream state. Now, previously, they were just kind of manifestations of her fascinations with medicine and dead bodies and that kind of stuff. And here it's like, these people are all alive, but she is a goddess who is being worshipped. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's kind of that thing is like a teenager, though, right? Like you always think you see things clearly than everyone else and Mm -hmm. that you've got like the right idea and (laughs) it feels very difficult of uh, however your old girl she is. Indeed, (laughs) yes. So we're heading into the home stretch now. We learn that Grace's condition is worsening. This is, again, one of the few scenes that doesn't have Pauline in it. It's just Phyllis out drinking wine and... It's funny to me because originally the first time I saw it, I thought that this was just her getting really worried about Pauline. Like she's drinking a very, very large glass of wine out <laughs> in the middle of the day. And then you realize, oh, no, it's actually not about Pauline. It's the fact that Grace is fucking dying. 
and they need to get her on the transplant list immediately. (sighs) And Pauline is in this scene because this is the film's one crane shot as it pans up to reveal Pauline listening to them from her bedroom window. Mm -hmm. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. So the next morning, this is when Pauline seems to turn over a new leaf. She says she's going to be good. She's going to get her life on track. And this seems to go down well with Bob. You know, Phyllis says, I'll see it when I, or I'll believe it when I see it, which is classic mom line. Mm -hmm. So she then says, okay, uh, we have to go out for something in the city tonight and we're going to get a babysitter. But then the babysitter cancels. (laughs) Lucky, lucky, lucky. Mm. Mm. So this is where Pauline begins to put her plan into motion. She drugs her father's tea. She gasses Grace as well as Kimberly, the jump rope neighbor. The scene where she chloroforms Grace, though, is really, really good. And I love that Grace just keeps drawing (laughs) while she's, like, giving this monologue to her. She's like, my sister's just kind of weird. It's fine. Yeah. (sighs) You know, there's something almost comical about the way that she gasses Kimberly. Mm -hmm. And then you get Grace's and... A, you start to realize what's happening, but also one is sad and one is comedic. And it's like, oh, welcome. This is what Incision is doing the whole time. The first time I watched this, even when this was happening, I was kind of like, okay, this is what she wants. I, I don't actually think I ever thought. She would go through with it? I Yeah. I mean, or I thought that she would get stopped. <laughs> I, I I never, only because, I mean, again, like I, I know that this film deals with so many serious things, but again, it's, it is a funny movie. And my silly little mind <laughs> did not think that we were going to get this gut punch of an ending. And it is, it is just, it is a gut punch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I had like a building dread, mm-hmm. right? From the point where she self-diagnoses herself and mm. is talking to a woman, from that point on, I kind of had this dread. And then it got to that scene and I was like, okay, yeah, it is going there. God mm-hmm. damn it. <laughs> we did skip the self-diagnosis scene, but it's when she's talking to the principal. Like She just tells him, like, oh, well, if you uh, just go get, a, go get a therapist and this will get cleared right up for you. I got borderline. Right. <laughs> I feel like it's almost easy to jump over that because she's being flippant. Like, it seems like another way for her to talk her way out of getting into trouble. But again, in a way, she's almost using it as a bit of a confessional. Yeah. I almost... um, (laughs) I I kind of read it also, like, I mean, we always talk about, okay, like, when we're talking about mental illness or or past trauma or experiences, like, yeah, like, that explains something. It doesn't excuse certain behaviors or actions or whatever. So I almost read this as her excusing her behavior with her self-diagnosis. Yeah, I'm I'm just thinking about how it phrases this. Yeah. Because it's such (laughs) such a scene. Yeah. I just, I mean, I th- I think it's that thing because with BPD, there is a level of control that you do lose, mm-hmm. especially when you're splitting our black and white thinking, which is where you, you think in extremes and all of your emotions are very extreme. And then, you know, afterwards, you, when you come back down, you can be like, very rational about it and she's rational about everything she's so callous about everything and I'm the same sort of way like I'm very much just like yeah I'll just say whatever and I'm the same way about my BPD like I'm just like yeah I I have that but I also don't think it's an excuse like Mm -hmm. you know she she can't help that 
she would have that, but she is still responsible for the way she reacts to situations. Right. right. And I also forgot to mention, she's saying this because of what these girls did to her house. Like, they sprayed hmm. Pauline as a cunt, which is never brought up. Like, she never says, um, but they did this, this is why I reacted this way. Yeah, she never tries to actually... I, I think, like, Pauline just doesn't see these people as worthy of her explanations for the right. most part. Like, she doesn't respect them enough to tell them anything, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're just not important to her. Because she's got bigger things on her mind. Yeah, like, she'll divulge the information if she needs to, but she doesn't want to talk to them. She doesn't want to explain herself or what happened. Right. And, to her, I just don't even think they're worth the effort. <laughs> right. I think that's a fair that's a fair assumption. <laughs> so the next step in her plan, I don't fully understand. It's kind of the one piece of the film that I don't entirely know why she does it, but she cuts off all of her hair. This is unique to the film. Um, in the short film, the Pauline character does not cut off her own hair before doing this procedure. Yeah, I've talked before about how I'm kind of obsessed with hair. Like if people change their hair or if they get haircuts in films, it <laughs> always means something incredibly significant. And in this case, I do think it's a bit of a, I don't want to say a dissociative break, but it is very much a symbolic visual of the fact that she has undergone something or she is changing. Oh, this is, it's so funny because the first time I watched this, I did have long hair. Okay. And then a few weeks ago, I was going to say you just shaved your head. head. Oh, no, <laughs> shit! What have I said? I'm so sorry, Ren. <laughs> no, no, it's. I mean, like you are not wrong. It's definitely um, a sign that someone's kind of. It's a big change, you know, and you don't do big changes like that for no reason. So it's fair. But I like. I just think it's so funny that. The first time I watched this film, I aligned so much with it. And then the next time I've shaved my head and (laughs) then that final scene happened again, I was like, oh, fuck. I mean, let's not forget, like, I mean, shaving one's head has a stigma around it anyway. Maybe not because of, but a big reason why is because of Britney Spears. Uh, I'm... No, I'm gonna say that that's one. <laughs> no, I, I'm, so, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Wait, sorry. Nope. No, yeah, you're right. Let me rephrase that. I'm sorry. Not in, <laughs> not in every case, <laughs> but like, mm, how do I want to say this? Because it was kind of like with Britney. I know what you're saying because it was it was a sign of her mental break, and then yes. people kind of started associating it with you. You do that when you're at your lowest point, like yeah, yes. Yeah, and obviously that's not, like, the only stigma, because, like, there's things, like, you know, people presume things about people who shave their heads all the time because of people, like, skinheads and stuff like that, so... But, like, no, I totally know what you're saying because that picture of Britney with her shaved head was everywhere, and it Mm -hmm. was... I mean, it's disgusting the way that she was treated, but we're not going to get into that. Yeah, right. But... But I know what you mean because it's like people now associate that with mental illness in a way. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Th- you're much more eloquent <laughs> than how I was saying. <laughs> but but it's funny because y'all are reading it like that. But for me, I was like, I just thought that she was trying to be um, not clean, like but, um, sterile. Sterile. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, yeah. Uh, I, I did too. I thought it was about the the medicine and her being as sterile as possible yeah but like she didn't have a surgeon's cap to wear and like maybe not a bandana to put on so she yeah right. she was just making sure that she wouldn't have any hair on her 
Yes. I honestly, I think it's probably a mix of both. I think it's that, but at that point, like, there's there's no going back yeah. for, no. for yeah. where she is. And, you know, it's kind of like that when you shave your head, too. Once you do that, there's really no going back. Yes. So. Yeah. Oh, th- yes. <laughs> That's a good comparison. <laughs> and in case people weren't aware of how dedicated Annalyn McCord was to this role, of course, the IMDb trivia for this is that she actually did shave her head for this. Yes, I love that so much. And and actually, and that was one thing. Um, so whenever she was interviewing with Bates to get the role, he basically said, "You know, you have to shave your head for this as a way to like try to get her to not want right, to like, take oh, the this role." Pretty girl's not going to be willing to do this, and she was probably <laughs> like, "Cool, give me the razor." Yeah, no, she, and she was, and she and she. They, they talk about it in the commentary. She's like, "Oh, this little fucker is trying to get me away." <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I love that. Like. It just makes it better that she kind of did it out of spite. Yes. Because <laughs> Pauline does so much out of spite, like vomiting right. on her desk. So and We didn't bring this up, and I don't think we need to really go into it too much. But I mean, just a couple months ago, Annalyn McCord came out and said that she has been, she has dissociative identity disorder. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Uh, this is like, as in like April of 2021. Wow. I think she posted on Instagram. But yeah, so um, I think that, you know, when she says she sees a lot of herself in Pauline, I think there are, I mean, not to say that Pauline has this DID, but, you know. No, I I think that's definitely accurate, like, the way she sees herself in it. And I know a lot of other people with BPD do suffer from dissociation mm-hmm. when we reach, like, a certain point in, like, a mental breakdown and stuff. So I, yeah, there's a lot of similarities with the way you would express those things visually. Yeah. Mm. So, folks, we are, I, I feel like I've been dreading actually having to say the words because it's so fucking upsetting. But um, yeah, so this is the moment where Pauline gives her younger sister a lung transplant with Kimberly's lungs in a dirty ass garage. It's shot so well because it's mostly it's just the weapons, right? I'm sorry, the tw- the surgical tools that we're seeing, which are mm-hmm. kitchen knives. I love that you phrased it as weapons though because <laughs> Oh man. <Yeah. laughs> wow. That's a Freudian slip of epic proportions and it's so accurate. It is, but honestly that's not what really upsets me the most about this scene. We we get a cut first. Is it this the face. overhead shot of yes. blood just coming out of her mouth? Yes, it, yeah. we get the jump rope girl who I'm like, ah, whatever, like, I, she's fine. But I, I, I mean, she's not fine. She's very dead. Um, yeah. But I, I just, again, this is how silly I am. But like, I remember the first time watching this, even watching this, I'm like, well, maybe it's going to work out for her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then we get that shot of Grace as, yeah, as, oh, no, she is, she is very dead. Yeah. Wow, you were more hopeful than I know. <laughs> than I was going into that scene. I'm an eternal optimist, and so it's honestly it's when the credits rolled that I was like, oh, no. <laughs> you so you had wrong. to sit there and accept it. Yeah, because I I didn't want it to be real. I was like, no, this mm-hmm. this sucks. <sighs> but, I mean, it, it's a beautiful ending. Like it's a poetic ending for this tale. It's a gut punch of an ending. Yes, yeah. it's it's just so oh oh my god. Yeah. So while this is happening, and we are coming to the realization that both Grace and Kimberly are dead, this is where Phyllis arrives home from her night in the city. She finds Bob unconscious and tied up, and he is groggy, so he can't really help her, and she starts to freak out. And she noticeably only calls for Grace and not for Pauline, Mm -hmm. which I thought is very telling. Mm -hmm. 
she ends up ultimately discovering her in the garage and Pauline tries to explain what she's doing. So she says she tried the surgery and then she realized that she didn't do it properly, but she wants her mother to admire her suturing work. And I love the moment that it takes Phyllis to acknowledge what's happened. Like she clearly understands, but she doesn't react immediately. And then mother and daughter clutch at each other and they're alternately wailing and screaming. And it's just so fucking powerful. It takes Pauline a moment because Phyllis hugs her, grabs her, holds her, and is just, yeah, wailing. But it takes Pauline, like, a mm-hmm. couple seconds before it's, it's like you see the realization in her eyes as yes. to really, like, what she has done. And then she breaks. And that, ugh, it is. And then, yeah, cut to black. <laughs> yeah, that that end scene, I was shaken after mm-hmm. watching that. I... It was one of those, you know, where you sit with the credits on and then afterwards you're yep. like, wait, how long have the credits been over and how long mm-hmm. have I been sat here? Yeah. <laughs> how long have I been in my own fantasy thinking that maybe that didn't actually happen? But I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't take it any other way, right? No. Half of the film's no. power is how everything builds up to this moment. I feel like people give Midsommar a lot of credit for the way that they put Danny through the ringer, but people like to use that gif of her screaming and the women screaming with her mm. and how it becomes this communal experience. And I'm like, but excision excision's right, right there. Here. <laughs> yeah, you know what's funny is I was literally just about to mention that because <laughs> Tracy Lords, oh, okay. like the the scream, like the the way she expresses that at the end it reminded me very much of like tony collette in hereditary or florence Pugh in midsummer like ariasta needs to cast her in (gasps) horror and have her do that because he has a thing about women that he just like gets this raw emotion out of and clearly tracy lords that Mm -hmm. that end scream it's Oh, oh, it's brutal. It's guttural. It's got shivers. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I think you're a, you're both, like, right. Like, very, very right. <laughs> I, <laughs> I I have no words, really, left for this ending, because it's just like, yeah, I, I want to, I just want to sit with it and just, like, accept it. Can I try to summarize it using a yeah. review that I found that I thought was really well-written? Go ahead. Okay, yes. so this is by Carmel Banaski, and it is from The Rumpus. And of this final piece, she writes, We're propelled into a universal closing moment. Pauline's mother embraces her in the midst of this nightmare, and this horrific, bloody film suddenly transforms into a story about love and the acceptance of family. Pauline's failed literal excision is mirrored by her failed metaphorical one. Unable to excise herself from the mediocrity of her life, she collapses into the safety and comfort of family that she has for so long resisted. Oh, wow. I, I love that. Yeah. Because my read on it is so specific to the mental illness aspect of her actions that you know, I forget about the way she she is trying to excise herself from so much, but the ending really, really hit home with me because, uh, well, for a lot of it's a very layered <laughs> response that I had to it, 
you do this thing where uh, black and white thinking and it's like where you think in these extremes and if you have a fear of abandonment and you think someone's going to leave whether that's out of choice or their illness it can provoke that response and like there is a big stigma about this mental illness and I would just like to say that people with it would never do something like this like it is not like that at all it's but I did look at it as a metaphorical representation of the lengths you would go to to keep someone including hurting them right and there's a moment like when she comes out of it which is like when you come out with disassociating which is where you're like what have I done and who have I hurt and then she realizes and the only person left is you know her mom yeah, the person who has maybe hurt her the most, right? Yeah, and like that, it's just, it's such a heavy, heavy ending when you read it that way. And, you know, she, she did do the worst thing. She, she hurt the one person that she never, ever wanted to hurt in the entire film. I really like that read of it, too, actually. <laughs> actually, as if I wasn't expecting to like it. I really like that read, period. <laughs> actually, that's not a bad thing that you just said. <laughs> it's like there's something so simple and elegant and beautiful about this film that you don't anticipate when you first put it on right like when i first sat down in the theater and this film opens and pauline is just acerbic and unlikable but somebody that you also want to root for you don't think the film is going to go here and there's Mm -hmm. something so no effective about that and that's why i think this film continues to gain fans and and remain in the popular consciousness because like this fucking movie hits hard yeah i mean when i when i first put this film on i everyone told me they were like this is so extreme i was prepared going in for like body horror and it to be shocking and i so i expected that and it it did definitely live up to that but the thing i wasn't expecting was the emotional impact that it has Mm mm-hmm and I think that's that's what makes it so memorable. At least, like, like I'm, I hope, I hope more people discover this. Hopefully, we convince people to watch it. But um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I mean, I think this is a film that just deserves to be seen by so many more people. And yes. Bates and McCord even say something in the commentary where they're like, "I really hate when people say it's a gory movie because to me, no. to them, this isn't gore. This is art. Like this is right. beauty that's put on screen, and it's not this disgusting, despicable mm. film, which I'm sure some people will have. I mean, again, walk outs at Sundance. It is a beautiful film. It's just a very it's, I don't even want to say hard. Diff- yeah, it's hard. No, I agree because I know a lot of people will think it is over the top or gory mm-hmm. or whatever, but it's I don't know, I think those scenes like with all the blood, especially the one where she's having sex with Adam yeah, as well, that that's because this entire film is shot so beautifully yep. and erotically mm-hmm. and I don't know, I think that the parts that are supposed to be grotesque are made to be just as artistic as, like, the parts that are supposed to be beautiful, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so that's excision. <laughs> that, that is excision. <laughs> I love this conversation, though. That's my nervous laughter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Well, um, uh, oh my god, yeah, that, that, that is excision. Thank you, Ren, for coming on to talk about this. 
and thank you listeners for listening and hopefully watching this movie. But before we announce what we're covering next week, Ren, please let everyone know where people can find you on social media. And this is also your chance to plug anything you'd like to plug. Well, thank you for having me. And like you said at the beginning, I'm working on my book, Transploitation, my yes. podcast, Six Sad Monsters. I I have things coming out on my Patreon where I do writing, design, photography and everything. Uh if people want to find me, you can find everything just on my Twitter, pretty much, which is at the underscore roll banshee. Nice. <laughs> well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers and join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out and chat with other listeners. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Uh, and finally, uh, you know, go to our YouTube channel to watch our Micro Queers videos. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. We did just hit 400 uh, ratings slash reviews on the Americans iTunes, the Americans, the US iTunes store, uh, Apple <laughs> oh, Podcast those, Store. Those Russians, right? Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, help us get to 500 now. That's our next milestone. Uh, <laughs> if you want any more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We already kicked off the summer movie season with uh, pretty much everything Conjuring. We got an audio commentary on the first Conjuring film, an episode on the Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, uh, ranking the Conjuring films, yeah. and uh, we'll also be doing a summer movie preview and talking about the new Ilana Glazer pregnancy horror film premiering on hulu false positive yeah lots of fun stuff <laughs> yeah a lot of shit uh i'm sorry good shit hopefully <laughs> <God>. uh, <laughs> joe yes what are we talking about next week so we're gonna maybe traverse into some lighter fare and we're gonna well for me it's a revisit i don't know what it is for you trace but we're gonna check out ernest dickerson's bones with snoop dogg Never seen it. I'm not gonna lie. Um, I remember hearing it was bad from critics when it came out, and so I just never gave it the time of day. And I'm actually very much looking forward to remedying that that next week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is one where I remember thinking it was surprisingly enjoyable. So I'm eager to see if it holds up. Yeah, I think it's one of those like, oh, Snoop Dogg is like the lead in a horror film kind of things. Which, yes. admittedly, on me for having that kind of uh, that that kind of reaction. Oh, for sure. But it's Pam Greer, That doesn't too. make you want to watch it more, though. <laughs> okay, I, di I didn't listen to Snoop Dogg. I mean, this is, what, 2001? 2000 I was 12 when this movie came out. <laughs> it was 2001, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, in hindsight, yes. And, and I mean, uh, Ernest Dickerson is a horror quiz alumni. We did cover mm -hmm. his uh, Tales from the Crypt Demon Night uh, in our first year. So yes. I'm excited to check out more of his work. Yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> On that note, we can cross out excision. Yes, and cross out horror queers. 